When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Who Cares About the Rock Hall, a podcast about the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. I'm your host, Joe Quazala, and you know me. I know too much about the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. With me, as always, it's the skeptic. It's the voice of the audience. It's my co-host via Zoom video chat and on the AKG microphone, Kristen Studdard. Hi, Kristen. Hi, you know me as well. Unless this is the first time you're listening to the show, and that would be, hey, welcome. It's possible. I'd say any episode is possible. Kristen, we've come to the final week of our very special month, early in June, Linz. I really just can't believe it. I can't believe that it's been as long as it has been, and then also that it's almost over. Yeah. I'm terrified and... Also slightly excited to hear about what next month's pun will be. Uh, <laughs> yeah, so that's a, that's a little tease for next week. Uh, you'll find out what the July pun is going to be. So, Kristen, we've talked yes. about the history of the early influence category. We've talked about Charlie Patton. We've talked about Kraftwerk. Now, who are we talking about, Kristen, on this final week? Gil Scott Heron. That is correct. Um, so... Let's bring in our guest for this Gil Scott Heron episode. Uh, he's a journalist, and appropriately enough, he's the author of the biography, Gil Scott Heron, Pieces of a Man. It's Marcus Baram. Hi, Marcus. Hey, guys. Nice to be here. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Thank you for not just for being here, but for before starting, signaling to Kristen what we're going to talk about by having an array <laughs> of Gil Scott Heron LPs <laughs> behind you. Yeah. And this is my little studio, and I love to have like the records on the wall. And I just thought it makes sense to have as many Gil Scott Heron records as I can, you know, up behind me. So exactly. I was going to make Kristen, I was anticipating that I was going to make Kristen guess who we were going to talk about because I figured oh, she yeah. would have forgotten. But uh, I appreciate that you made it super easy for her. I really okay. would have forgotten. If I hadn't seen that book above your shoulder, I would have been, I yeah. would have forgotten. You know, I really, it was when I said the word, the name Gil Scott Heron that I realized where the first time I ever heard of Gil Scott Heron was, and it was in a Beastie Boys song. And I literally said it exactly like how they say it. It's like a name check song on, uh, yeah. it's on Hello Nasty, I think. It's like they're name checking everybody from like yeah. the foundations of hip hop. And I, re- yeah. that's, they literally go, Gil Scott Heron. And as we were saying, it, I was like, why am I saying yeah. it like that? And it's because so I listened to Hello Nasty a lot. Kristen, I think that's actually an LCD sound system song. I think that's losing my edge because they go Gil, Scott, Heron. They do it exactly it like that. Gil, Scott, Heron. Yeah. And maybe it's that they sound like uh, James Murphy sounds like the Beastie Boys in that moment. In that moment, okay. Yeah, that could I'm be not it. sure. I really did feel like I was. I I really felt like I was remembering something, and I bet I'm remembering two things. 
that could be it. The, the conflation that happens as time yeah. ravages our brains. But I'm hearing it in this other song that the BC Boys did, but right. it's not the one. It's a different one where they do a bunch of name oh. checks and that is okay. Um, but wow, I'm gonna learn some stuff about Gil Scott Heron, the real one, and maybe I'll probably remember half of it and confuse it with another thing someday in the future. Yeah. Can't yeah. wait. Yeah, we'll get that information to your brain and then it'll rattle around as it does. And then um, yeah. we'll take it from there. But before we really yeah. get into to Gil, I'd like to know, Marcus, and this is a question I ask all our guests when they join us, is kind of what is your reference level for the rock and roll hall of fame because it's a peripheral institution for a lot of people but a lot of people have very strong feelings uh, about it. um yeah i mean it's it seems it's a little bit sort of um reference level i've been there i went mm-hmm. maybe like eight years ago or something or probably 10 years ago i think it's before my son was born so maybe even longer ago um because i happen to be in cleveland on a weekend and and uh and that's kind of the thing yeah, where else do? you gonna go <laughs> yeah to be honest yeah i mean i don't remember that much about it I mean, to be honest, I just remember, I, thinking back now, I can barely remember what I saw there. Mm-hmm. Um, just, you know, they were, yeah, I don't even remember a single exhibit. I just remember this kind of big concrete building with a big plaza in front of it. And, you know, they have like a Hendrix guitar somewhere. Mm-hmm. And it, it just felt very much like, um, I, I don't know, like when you see one of those like big uh, coffee table books that has like, you know, rock legends of the seventies or something. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's all just kind of like, okay, the big names that everybody knows there's Hendrix and there's Clapton and there's the stones and the who, and it, it just, and it feels like very unrock. <laughs> you yeah. know, just like the ultimate sort of boomer commodification yes. of rock music where you because I keep thinking like who's gonna go to the rock and roll hall of fame? Because older people who experience that music are gonna be like, no, I'd rather have the music and I have my memories. I don't want to go to some museum exhibit. And younger people don't they have their artists and they don't want to hear music from 30 years ago. So they're not gonna be interested. So it's a very limited. Maybe I'm wrong, but it seems like a very limited I demographic. I think you underestimate the, the power of boomer bait, of yeah, nostalgia. That's what I was going to say. I yeah. think maybe I do. I think yeah. boomers it's a have very a lot of drug. They have a lot of money to spend, <laughs> right. and they want to go right. back. This is their mm-hmm. time machine to take right. them back to those right. years. Yeah, I think that's what, really what's true. better than memories? Uh, staring <laughs> yeah. at you know a collage of posters from the 60s right. no you're right i i probably totally underestimate that and especially and even like the fact that the stones tour every year and make like the most money of any mm-hmm. band in the world even today is a testament to how how much boomer you know interest there I is i think my mom has seen so. the rolling stones live probably seven or eight times wow like she would see them Probably every time they came well. to Chicago. Like yeah. they would just go. She would just, she was like, yeah, the stones are in town. We're going to go regardless yeah. of whether they had put out new music, if they right. liked anything that right. was happening with them. It's just like, why wouldn't you go be among, I don't know, a hundred thousand people. Yeah. And they make something insane, like a hundred million a year or something. I don't even know what the number is, but like every time they tour, it's just insane money. Cause they probably charge 300, 400 bucks a ticket, all the, t-shirts and other crap that's being sold and they're like number one above like the top selling artists in the whole world so that's yeah. 
Yeah, you gotta for sure. get a boomer audience. Maybe that's my. Role. That's the key. That's uh, everyone's key. It is disposable income. I gotta either get Gen Z or boomers. Right, and that's why even like in terms of who tours today, it's unbelievable. I mean, I grew up in the '80s, so I'm not quite boomer, but you know, I'm Gen Gen X, mm-hmm. and all the bands that I came up with through high school are all like touring again. And the first band I saw when all the announcements came forward, you know, in New York, they lifted all the restrictions on COVID mm-hmm. two weeks ago. And they were like, Oh, you know, we're gonna have concerts again. And the very first band I heard about was Devo, like at wow. Radio City, I think. And I was like, what the fuck Devo? That's, that's the first band I hear about when live music returns. That's and the second one you hear about, Soul Asylum. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I saw actually at the First Avenue Club with my my brother-in-law like five years ago. <laughs> oh wow! I mean, yeah, it's coming. It's coming for us all. Yeah, yeah it, it is. is. Did you ever think that Gil Scott Heron would be in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame? I'm not too surprised actually, because pretty much the year he died, 2011, exactly 10 years ago. That year they did some, I think the term for it, it's like an, not a, like an honorary tribute or they did some honor to him. Did mm-hmm. they put him in the uh, in memoriam or something? No, it wasn't that. It was like some other kind of subcategory. It's not quite like being an inducted, but it was like some honor. They got Weezer to come and do a tribute performance. No, there, there, was not, there was nothing at the, this was probably something at the museum versus- mm-hmm. Yeah, and his family like showed ceremony. up and it was yeah. like, you know, they took photographs and that was kind of it. Oh, uh, then maybe they made like an exhibit or something too? I don't know. I it wasn't an exhibit, it was some, I can look it up. It was some like Just honor. Just honor, gave. yeah. I mean, like yeah. the museum does that kind of stuff all the time. And as we've talked about right. before, weirdly the museum and the foundation that does the induction and controls who gets in and all that the voting process and all that thing are weirdly separate uh and the the museum tends to have a better track record of being on the right side of of history getting things right and and doing uh you know honoring more people and you know uh, underserved artists you might say you know yeah the museum in some ways is like less political because the you know the people on the nominating committee and the people who are part of the you know, ceremony and the decision makers uh, are all pretty, many of them, most of them, I would say, are still very involved in the in the industry. And I think mm-hmm. kind of the yes. people at the museum are more historians and librarians and, and archivists and, and curators. Yeah. yeah. And so they right. tend to have less of a whose back do I got a scratch kind of right outlook and more of a well who have we not you know looked at recently and what's in current culture that we could you know Mm -hmm. draw from that yeah and also i guess i'm not surprised to answer your question joe just because there have been a bunch in the last year or two there's been like a surge of interest in gill like i used to do after the book came out like a google alert thing for his Mm -hmm. name and just for his name and literally, it wasn't that much. Like once a week, something would pop up. And usually it was just some random, you know, mention of, of artists from that era. And now every day, there's at least like five or 10 Google hits I get. Um, and obviously during the Black Lives Matter protest last summer, there were like tons of people holding signs, quoting his lyrics. Mm-hmm. And then he was in the, the African American History Museum in DC. They have an exhibit that features like some, I think a, a jacket that he had. Um, and then the induction into the hall just seemed like a natural kind of step. It didn't really surprise me too much because there's been a lot more focus on him. It, it surprised um, me. I was not, I didn't know that he was uh, on the lips of 
people in in power in the hall. Yeah. I mean, it does it makes sense. I'm not like whoa, but I just it just was one that we were not. I don't think expecting. Right. I don't think he had been kind of like in our you know, oh, maybe mm. also because we have no idea how they're going to use the early influence category. I also just want to circle back to something that you said before we started recording, which was that you have a list of people that you think have been snubbed you or that like are not in the hall that should be because Joe has one as well. And I'm just curious about who you think should oh. be in the hall that isn't just before we move uh, into talking about the artist. I know I would love to hear, especially it's very mm -hmm. rare that we get someone who has already thought about this. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, to be honest, I think more, it was more about the Grammys. I think like people who would snub by the Grammys over the years, but there's always like a long list of people. I think even like, Oh, like, sure. Who, uh, who and like even the Beatles, I think there were all kinds of artists that got snubbed by the Grammys. But for the hall, I mean, I and I'm not even sure you guys are the experts. I'm not mm -hmm. even aware fully of like who's actually in there. Like, is Captain Beefheart in there? Or he's no? not. No, he's not. Okay, so that's one. Mm -hmm. That's kind of messed up. I mean, is Leonard Cohen in? He is. Probably yes. Yes. He is. Okay. Okay. That's not too surprising, I guess. And he got well, in while and... he was alive too. And that was, you know, oh. good, good on them. It, see, it and... feels like a hall move to be like, to put him in posthumously, but. I'm yeah. Glad. So that they can play Hallelujah. Yeah. Um, uh, right. um, <laughs> it's just the, it's the move. Yeah. Also a band that you just mentioned, Devo is not in, and they were okay. nominated this year. They have been nominated once at least once before yeah, so they're, they're on the ballot for the second time this year and i think I mean, they will probably fairly, should they be in <laughs> i mean yeah their whole concept is you know almost at odds yeah. with with that type of thing but uh yeah is i think so like you know is flock of seagulls going to be in there like not really hang on that comparison okay <laughs> i'm old enough because i came up through that era so i can like make fun of all those bands if i want to sure but like <laughs> yeah. having a novelty head is not equivalent to being a novelty band, Flock which is something that Devo hits. has it suffered had two from. Hits. Flock of Sequels had two hits, though. That's true. That's true. Yeah. What was had, theirs? I ran. I ran. And then and they what? had, was it, what's that song called? Yeah, the song. Always. Like, <laughs> love. It, it has a, a was longer it a, title. Um, love song. Was it a for, love song like a ballad? I'm just thinking of that Duran Duran one. Duran Duran will probably get in. Yeah, and they deserve to be in for Space sure. Space Age Love Song is what it's called. Oh, there you I go. don't know that yeah. one. Yeah, yeah you do. It's, you do. You, if you heard it, you would. You know, <laughs> I mean, I'm thinking of a lot of bands. Like, I listen to a lot of like hardcore and punk, and I'm like, is Gang of Four in the Rock and Roll Hall? Well, thing? that's the Hall has a major blind spot with really any group that is slightly underground you know it's right. a very mainstream hall the voting process is set up in such a way that it's almost impossible unless you have wide spread name recognition it's right. you know you're not going to be getting the votes uh sadly and you know that probably mm -hmm. means that the system is broken but these side categories exist almost as a way to to supplement Right. The more okay. mainstream things that the voting body goes for. So, you know, we've got six artists going in 
the regular way in the performer category. And then for the first time or the first time in a while, they're yeah, really making six use- going through the front door and then they opened up the side door and we're like, okay, uh, everybody else get down. Usually, day. usually it's like maybe one or two, sometimes none in these side categories, but this year they really decided to, they're putting hmm. in seven artists in side categories. Wow. Three in wow. early influence, three in musical excellence, one in non-performer. So they're they're really making a push, which you know is one of the big issues with the hall is that if you were just going to put in five or six a year, the backlog is just going to get bigger and bigger, and you are not going to right. get the artists you need to get in the hall. Do, like do like lot, all wait, these bands oh. you see, like like Bad Brains, they're not in there, right? Um, minor Threat. All, none of those bands are in there, as far no, as I know. No, no, of course, of course are the not. Stooges in there? The, <laughs> Stooges, the Stooges are, but they took it was like maybe ten ballots for them wow. to get in. It took a long, wow. it took a long time. The MC Five were they in there? MC Five are are one that get on the ballot quite a right. lot, but still have not pushed wow. through. I think eventually wow. they are going to get side categoried. I think that's, I think they've been on the ballot enough mm-hmm. and not garnered the votes that they're going to pull an LL Cool J. They're going to pull a craft work. They're going yeah. to put them in the side category. Right. Joe, you're not going to say Jill side category or something like that for July? No, Some, something- of course. I'm not, not a nice try, okay. uh, but I, it's going to be worse. I'm just than- like, what's the worst way you could? Okay. Uh, once All I right. reveal it to you, you are going to be so mad (laughs) i am already angry and i like we haven't even gotten there all right uh yeah i do i do i think the mc5 though is gonna be side categoried just Mm -hmm. because if if they do get in but because but i do think that there are people on the nominating committee who will continue to bring them up i don't think it's like they're going to be forgotten right right because uh tom morello Tom Morello yeah. and John Landau, who produced, uh, you know, their their work, who is in charge of the nominating committee. I mean, he is like the powerful player in that room. He he runs right. it, and he has a strong connection. He worked with those guys, so he's not going to let them be ignored. Uh, I think you're right, though. I think the the side category. I would like to see some sort of consistency as to when and why they put in oh, someone in a. Is side that category. nice that you'd like that? that I you'd would like, like for them to have some kind of consistency, some it, sort I of mean, criteria. <laughs> yeah, I mean, in a way, it always reminds me a little bit the the hall, kind of a little bit of like the Rolling Stone cover. You know. <laughs> Because like what Jim Morrison is in a million times. Yeah, for like, for literally forever, I think going back to the 90s, like every other cover was like Tom Petty or something. And you're like, really? There's like so many artists. And and, but Rolling Stone had a total blind spot when it came to not just hardcore and punk, but also like dance music. Or women. Dance music in general, like has been totally ignored. I mean, they kind of finally caught up with hip hop in the 90s, but that whole era from like Detroit, New York, Chicago and house music. And that whole thing has been completely ignored by whether it's the hall or the major music magazines. Mm -hmm. And, And, you know, the, the, the link between Rolling Stone and the hall is a direct one. You know, it was started, both were started by Jan Wenner and the nominating committee, at, at least up until recently was meeting at the Rolling Stone offices and many Rolling Stone writers are on the nominating committee and, a lot many more are in the voting yeah. body and so that connection is a is a very very strong one right right 
Interesting. But um, uh, let's uh, let's get into Gil Scott Heron. Let's start to talk about yeah. artist. Uh, first question I want to ask is, uh, do you remember the first time you heard his music? A great question. Um, you know, I do probably maybe not the very, very first time, but I remember being in college. This is like mid eighties, uh, in California, Pomona college, small college. And somehow I heard it wasn't even the revolution will not be televised, but I think it was, um, there's no such thing as Superman or can't you understand? And right away, just it resonated with me. I was like, "Wow, that's I like that." That's it's like it's rhythmic and it has you know an R and B, and but it has like kind of a rock element to it, and it's 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 like protest music, mm-hmm. but not mm-hmm. like some Dylan folk song. This is like music I could like nod my head to and dance to. So right away, I was just I I, I loved it, and then I think I sought out more of the music, and then when I moved to New York in '91. And was a school teacher. Gil was doing these sets where every Sunday before Martin Luther King Day, every year, he would do a show at SOBs, Sounds of Brazil, the show in uh, this uh, club in downtown New York, in downtown Manhattan. And I, when I, I moved here and pretty much like right away went to that the first show he did there, and then went every year for like the next at least ten you know, at least 10 or 12 years. I just kept going every year to like that annual show he did uh, in January. And did it, did it blow you away? Yeah, I mean, it, it, it was always interesting to see him in, uh, in, in concert because to be honest, I mean, already by 91, which is when I moved to the city, mm-hmm. he was already kind of in the throes of his drug addiction. Mm-hmm. So he, you could already tell he was way past his prime. I mean, not to be like, you know, cruel, but... But his prime was really the 70s, like the mid 70s. Mm-hmm. There's an album of his called It's Your World that was recorded on July 4th, 76. So the bicentennial mm-hmm. in Boston, of all places. Wow. So, and they actually, and you know, that was the height of Gill's like power in terms of music and in terms of his, um, his poetry and his, his uh, political like rhetoric and passion. And he was coming out with all those like really intense very, you know, politically sarcastic lyrics about corruption in Washington and, and, and you know, the, the military industrial complex mm-hmm. and to be in Boston, the heart of the, the revolution, but also like the heart of a lot of, you know, there was a lot of controversies of and racism yeah. in Boston and to be there to record that album. That album is still like one of my favorite albums of all time. It's like a double album. It's all live. Um, but anyways, to cut, you know, to your question, and then saw him. Uh, but you know, but I think what was amazing about Gil, even seeing him live, was that you'd kind of see the band would get up there on stage and start performing, and then you'd see like Gil off to the side, and he looked like he was sick. He was like really skinny, mm. and just looked like. And we knew, you know, everyone was pretty familiar with like his drug addiction and his. Mm-hmm. He was basically a functioning crackhead for like thirty years. Good God, um, to be blunt, and you'd be like, wow, he's not going to make it up to the stage. Like he won't be able to perform. And then somehow Gil would like make it up the steps. He'd go to the front of the stage and get behind his keyboard and, you know, count off the numbers. And sure enough, it all like get right into the groove. And he was in it. Like he kept time and he was like, his voice was a little hoarse. Sometimes wasn't as strong as it used to be, of course, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but he would still bring it. They'd perform and it sounded great. His band was always tight. And uh, yeah. I mean, it wasn't, you could tell it wasn't exactly what 
you may have heard on record, but it was like mm-hmm. pretty powerful. I went every year. I was going to say, you yeah. kept coming back. Exactly. Yeah, yeah no, definitely. Definitely. Um, and then wh- how does that transition from you deciding to write a book about him? Well, so basically over those years, I started to kind of meet him backstage sometimes. I think first as a fanboy, and then I would just kind of, he always recognized me and we kind of hang out a little bit backstage at the small club. Um, and then in 2008, I pitched doing a profile of him for New York Magazine. And it was kind of a weird time for Gil because he had just come out of jail for a drug conviction and he was living in Harlem in like a friend's apartment, just like using a room in that apartment. So he was kind of like down on his luck and not doing too well. And I went up there with this amazing photographer and did a whole profile of him and hung out for the day and just really like spent hours just talking to him about everything, politics, because Obama had just been elected. It was yeah. kind of late, late in the year. And he had a lot of feelings about that, um, you know, good and bad, actually, to be honest. And a lot of discussion about everything from Miles Davis to his feelings on music and hip hop um, to New York City and how that had changed. And we really kind of bonded. And and I did the profile. And then he had told me how he was doing a memoir. And he'd been working for years and years. And he actually had like a big hefty bag, a trash bag that was full of his his papers. Wow. He was like, you know, basically had moved around a lot and, you know, the drug addiction, it kind of messed up his life. And he had this old brother typewriter, like, you know, one of those electronic, Mm -hmm. like pre-computer. And he would like take, write this. He'd been writing for like 10 or 15 years, this memoir about his life. Um, And it was focused around for him. The highlight of his life was touring with Stevie Wonder in 1981, where Stevie Wonder, when he did the Hot of In July album and did that song, the Happy Birthday song in tribute to MLK. Stevie Wonder, which is an amazing story on its own, made it his mission to turn MLK's birthday into a national holiday. Mm-hmm. And he, and that, at the time, there was a lot of resistance like in the Reagan administration and a lot of conservatives didn't want another holiday in the books. And Stevie Wonder fought for like 15 years and to help push it, he did a tour in 81 and he had all these like big names like Michael Jackson came and performed with him in Madison Square Garden and Barb Marley was the opening act. And then Marley died like right before the tour. So Stevie Wonder was a big fan of Gills and Stevie Wonder asked Gill to replace Bob Marley and basically be his opener. Wow. And Gil was like so overwhelmed. I mean, like for him, it was like the biggest honor of his life. He loved Stevie to be on the same stage with Stevie in these huge auditoriums like Madison Square Garden was just like unbelievable. So the whole book was kind of, a lot of it was focused on that tour mm-hmm. and the whole tour mm-hmm. and the energy, his relationship with Stevie what happened on that tour, the influence they had and making it a holiday. It's um, so, yeah, but, I guess I've never even thought about, I mean, it's been a holiday my whole life. 
I didn't even think, I just assumed that it happened when he died that like, of course it didn't. Yeah. I know that mm -hmm. I've now I'm thinking about it a little more critically, <laughs> but I just in mm. my head was like, so MLK died. I've the nation mourned and we gave him a holiday right then and there. And of course I not, wish. of course not. Well, no. you know, it's like if um, instead we had been asking if, you know, people had been asking for bigger things, they probably could have gotten it faster. Cause look at Juneteenth happened. People were like, Hey, how about you raise the minimum wage? How about some reparations? They're right. like, what about Juneteenth? What about a holiday? <laughs> how about that? How about, yeah, good, okay, good there you good go. Point. Maybe that, yeah, maybe true. that was the, <laughs> it happened yeah. fast too. People just went, sure. That's what was amazing to me. <laughs> that was like the MLK thing took forever and Stevie yeah. fought for it so hard. And the Juneteenth thing happened like really quickly. It's because so. it's a, um, you know, it doesn't require real change. <laughs> People yeah. are like, oh, you. yes, we love a, um, a, right. a gesture, an empty gesture. Right. Oh, yes, yeah, yeah. No, you can true. have that. That's no cool. problem. They, I think that we've now realized the, the power that like an empty gesture doesn't cost you anything. <laughs> Right. And I think uh, the cynical politicians at the you know, mm -hmm. now were like, yeah, sure. Give them Juneteenth, mm -hmm. whatever. It doesn't cost us anything. Yeah. It's very uh, interesting. But, uh, but anyways, to go back to your question, so, ba so basically, so Gil had been writing on this memoir or working on this memoir for like 15 years. And he had this really literally a hefty bag full of all these notes and sheets with like typewritten faded um, notes. And he was like, I need some help. So if you could like help me work in the memoir, mm. be great. This is like the setup so, to every, the movie of an, a, 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 you know, always where it's like, you know, a reporter comes and they find the artist past their prime. They've got a garbage bag full of right. all of their materials. And they're mm -hmm. like, I this just need someone to help me yeah. uh, sort right. it all through. And it's like, yeah, well, well I had, we had a connection and I'm a big fan. So I'm going to go through and help yeah. you do it. I'm yeah. like, that's exactly is, it. And what it is, is, is your character is the kiss. Protagonist, but Gil Scott Heron is technically supporting, and that actor gets nominated for Academy Award. Oh, hey guys, yeah. your lips to God's ears. <laughs> this movie. is that um Definitely. freaking Tom Hanks, uh, uh, the Mr. Rogers the movie, Mr. Rogers That's movie, exactly based yeah. on that article. Yeah, it's just like you know, it's Tom Hanks gets the uh, uh, Oscar nod in right. supporting, even though it's about right. him. But the lead is technically the writer who's you know right. chasing him down. Right. I'm like Denzel That's, as like Gil like Scott Heron. Yeah, you he's know? got the fine agent for me. I love it. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Get this going. Yeah. Write the yeah. Honestly, we should. You're in LA, right? You can make it happen. Oh yeah, we're movers and shakers in this industry, baby. Huge Here we power go. Players. <laughs> power players. Well, you know, one of the things we do on this show that doesn't exactly apply because Gil is getting in, but we have this like list of categories that we go through and it's I, I've reverse engineered them to determine if we think an artist is going to get into the hall mm. because the hall doesn't really say what the criteria is or why someone gets in or why someone doesn't. So kind of looking at who they've inducted, I've kind right. of figured out a list of categories. Now, what I would like to do is I would like to actually go through those categories with Gil not so much to evaluate if he's going to get in, because obviously that's a moot point, but I think it's it, it's a familiar way to tell his story. And I think it's it will yeah. kind of hit a lot of the bullet points. So why don't we take a quick break? And then when we come back, we will keep talking Gil Scott Heron. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the show, everybody. We hope you had a nice break. We hope over your break that you um, discussed a piece of art that is meaningful to you. Yes. Mm -hmm. Discussions of art is something we promote 
Okay, so <laughs> Gil Scott Heron became eligible for the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 1996, had mm. never been on a ballot, and was inducted, obviously, this year in the early influence category. And this year was a huge expansion of what the idea of early influence means, because mm -hmm. prior to this, it was artists from the pre-rock era. So your, your Robert Johnsons, your T-Bone Walkers, those types of artists. Uh, a, a few years ago, we had started to see maybe artists who were from the early rock era, maybe not pre-rock. We started to see people like Wanda Jackson and Freddie King who were not pre-rock, but they were early influences to some degree. But with Kraftwerk and Gil Scott Heron this year, it is a complete reimagining of what mm. this category is. But let's start with these, uh, with these categories. Let's go through these categories. Uh, the first one that we talk about is iconic slash recognizable songs. Now, I think... It's pretty obvious with Gil Scott Heron, like kind of the one big song that even if you don't know much about the man, you might know the song. You might even just know the phrase, which is the revolution will not be televised. The revolution will not be televised. The revolution will not be brought to you by Xerox in four parts without commercial interruptions. The revolution will not show you pictures of Nixon blowing a bugle and leading a charge by John Mitchell, General Abrams, and Spiro Agnew eat hog moths confiscated from a Harlem sanctuary. The revolution will not be- That song, it, when I listened to it, you know, a month ago, if someone were to write this right now, it would still be timely and not trite. Yeah. It is a song that manages to be political, conscious, and still cool without suffering from the corniness that a lot of protest songs can mm -hmm. fall into because it really is a call out, you know, it's not like a call for unification. It's a call for, it's a call out of just, it's an anti-capitalist song, you know, yeah. and yeah. who would have thought what 50 years later that that would still be absolutely top of mind. It's interesting to listen to that song and realize just how many people I know who feel that exact same way. Mm. Still. Still. Yeah. That's really interesting. You say that. Yeah. I mean, it's good to hear that. I mean, that's why it's always wonderful for me to see during protests. I mean, whether they were here in New York, you know, after the George Floyd killing or elsewhere or overseas, even during the Arab spring 10 years mm -hmm. ago, and you'd see like these revolution will not be televised signs and protests. And then people even send me, I have a, a Bill Scott Heron pieces of a man, um, Facebook page. And people would send me like photos from around the world of like graffiti. Yeah. With that from mm -hmm. like Yugoslavia or mm -hmm. from Hong Kong. And it's just, it's kind of amazing how that's resonated over the years. And it even seems to have built up power. Cause to be honest, like in the eighties, when I first started hearing Gil, I mean, that was a song I knew, but it wasn't like that dominant, I think. It was just like something a few, a few people knew. And it feels like it's kind of built up over the years and become more and more influential and more widely known. Um, what's interesting mm -hmm. I always think is, is that the song though always gets like misinterpreted because you see it in a million headlines and people say, oh, the something will not be televised or the revolution will not be, you know, social media eyes. People always <laughs> kind of do some version of it for, for a headline. And it kind of takes away because, I mean, Gil always used to say that the song actually doesn't mean, oh, like literally people see it literally like the revolution will not be on television. Mm -mm. And he's like, no, 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 that's not what it's saying. The whole song is basically you can't just sit back on your couch 
and watch this political change happen. Yep. If you want to see that change happen, you have to do it yourself and go out in the streets and be part of it and take action. That was sort of the message, mm-hmm. um, which a lot of people, I think, always misinterpret. Yeah. Uh, and we can kind of talk about the history of Gil through this song because now the version of this song that most people know was not the original version because there was an original take of this that was on his first album, Small Talk at 125th and Lennox. And that was much more of like a spoken word. I believe the only, there's only like light accompaniment, maybe just like drums, like a bongos, right? Yeah. It was like basically Mm -hmm. them in like a little room. It was like actually a a club, like a a bar. And they had like a guy on Congress. The revolution will not give your mouth sex appeal. The revolution will not get rid of the nubs. The revolution will not make you look five pounds thinner. The revolution will not be televised, brother. And then for the second one, which is this one right here, actually, it's a more full version. Right. And that's what you hear the flute and you hear mm-hmm. an actual fuller musical accompaniment right. behind it. But let's get a little bit of the background of, of Gil Scott Heron kind of leading up to his first album. Uh, this was a guy who was born in Chicago, had lived for a time in Tennessee, and yeah. then still as a as a young man, made his way to the Bronx, right? Yeah, well, he went to uh, school in the Bronx, but he his mom, uh, he lived with his grandmother in Tennessee, and then his mom was living in New York. And he came and lived with her, and she actually lived in Manhattan, in the Chelsea neighborhood, which was a very Latino neighborhood back then, very uh, mm-hmm. Puerto Rican neighborhood. And then he went to high school, though, um, he got a scholarship to this nice high school in the Bronx. Because from an early age, he had, uh, you know, he was an incredible writer. Like he, his talents were obvious yeah. from an early age. Yeah. And then he even had like a little band in high school at this school called Fieldston, kind of a prep school in, in New York. And mainly he's like one of the few black kids at the school, but they had like a little band. And then he went to this all black college, Lincoln University in Pennsylvania, outside of Philadelphia. And that's really, I mean, he was only obviously 18. And that's where he met all the people who would end up, not all of them, but that's where he met the people who'd become, you know, his musical partners and soulmates and formed the band. So he met Brian Jackson, who's really his musical partner, who was an amazing piano player and flautist, um, who they made albums together until 1980. And other members who play drums on that revolution recording, uh, and other, you know, the guitarist and other musicians who joined them. All they all met when they were 18, 19 at Lincoln. And actually, what's interesting about the revolution is that I mean, Gill gets sampled all the time by all these artists and all these hip-hop stars, but he actually sampled another song for the revolution will not be televised. There's that band called The Last Poets. Mm-hmm. who are very mm-hmm. radical black spoken word poetry collective in New York that started in Harlem, like in the late sixties. And they had a song called when the revolution comes. When the revolution comes, some of us will probably catch it on TV with chicken hanging from our mouths. You'll know it's revolution because there won't be no commercial when the revolution comes. And they were all about like spoken word poetry over like simple drums. That was mm-hmm. it. No mm-hmm. instruments, nothing else. And they came to Lincoln, performed. And they did this song called When the Revolution Comes, which has a lot of lyrics that are very similar to Revolution Will Not Be Televised. And afterwards, Gil walked up to them and like, spoke to the leader of the band and was like, I want to do what you guys do. <laughs> and basically went off and started writing his poetry and got his musicians together and they started the band. 
And then he wrote Revolution Will Not Be Televised like six months later. That obviously is the big song that everybody knows, even if they don't know the song, they know the name. But what if we had to pick out some other songs that we think are like significant Gil Scott Heron songs, what would we pick? The other one that I knew by him before, probably the only other Gil Scott Heron song that I know is Home is Where the Hatred Is. Home is where the hatred is. I want to say that Revolution Will Not Be Televised was the, was that the side to Home Is Where the Hatred Is? Yeah, right. And then that's, that's off the second album, Pieces of a Man. And I would, for the first album, I'd say the other resonant song that still gets referenced is Whitey on the Moon. I can't pay no doctor bills, but Whitey's on the moon. Ten years from now, I'll be paying still while Whitey's on the moon. And actually, that was in the movie First Man, that movie with Ryan Gosling. About right. Neil Armstrong. And they have a whole scene with Leon Bridges, who himself is a great musician, mm-hmm. like playing Gil and right. like singing the song. And I remember it was like so amazing. That was one of the first moments that Gil kind of really made it through pop culture. That's when I was talking about this kind of resurgence of interest in Gil, where I was like, oh my God, I can't believe in this you know, huge movie with Ryan Gosling. They have a whole Gil Scott Heron scene. <laughs> it just blew my mind. Yeah, that's crazy. And I know that, that that song, I think I maybe first saw that song or I saw it recently again. I think it was the day or day after George Floyd's death. There was a Tesla launch. There was an Elon oh, God, yeah. SpaceX yeah. launch. And it, it it's like, wow, this it's... <sighs> Still very, very resonant. It's so depressing to realize how little progress has been made. No, it it is. It is. I mean, besides, Mm. I mean, you mentioned revolution and the issues talked about there. Whitey on the moon, exactly like how we're spending our money instead of addressing poverty Mm -hmm. in the inner city and in, in rural parts of America and other songs like some of my favorite songs by Gil are songs that talk about work and the working class like blue collar looking at the face of the children you see we're looking for a higher ground and you can't name where we ain't been down is an amazing mm-hmm. song just that basically is just an ode it's almost like a Woody Guthrie type song it's like an ode to the working man whether white black Mexican doesn't matter. Just that these are people who do hard jobs, construction work, people who are miners that have really difficult jobs. And then another great song by him is Three Miles Down, which is about coal miners. And, you know, most of it is about white coal miners. So, I mean, Gil had this really very broad perspective, and it's about these guys who just go down three miles down deep in the mine and do this work and come up just to keep our lights on. And that was, I mean, those are really powerful songs that aren't always that well-known compared to his most famous songs. In terms of big songs, The Bottle. Right. Probably like his biggest hit. And don't you think it's a even though it's a song about alcoholics in Washington, D.C., it's like so classic for Gil that it had a rhythm and it became this like song people were dancing in the clubs Mm -hmm. to Mm -hmm. without even really probably realizing what the lyrics were about. Right, yeah. It became like a disco hit. uh (laughs) Uh-huh. I I think it's interesting also, like if you don't know much about 
his music, I think, especially if you're just going off of Revolution Will Not Be Televised, which is essentially spoken word over a beat, you might think yeah. that that's what his work was, which some of it was, but there's a lot of music that he put out, maybe even you could say the majority of it, like The Bottle, that is very groovy and, and yeah. soulful and yeah. not like that at all. Exactly. And it actually, to, looking back like when, to your one of the, I think your first or second question, that actually might have been the first song I probably heard by Gil was mm-hmm. The Bottle, because I probably, it was on probably some compilation of like R&B music that yeah. I heard in college and right. you're like, wow, that's cool. And mm-hmm. then you hear the lyrics and you're like, wow, now I'm really thinking about, you know, something much deeper. And then mm-hmm. the other big song that was very similar, where it's a very deep, important topic, but it has a rhythm and people are dancing to it was Johannesburg. Joe was one of the first people in America, or one of the first artists, definitely one of the first musicians to talk about apartheid. Mm-hmm. This is in 75, 76. And to do a song about Johannesburg, this is long before, you know, Peter Gabriel did Biko mm-hmm. and long before the Sun City albums. And he was singing about the evils of apartheid. And, but that was like a dance song. That was like in the clubs in London. It was like on the, in the charts. It was a huge disco hit. Yeah. He played that on Saturday Night Live in the first season. Yeah. Uh, and I, I love that story because Richard Pryor was the host and more or less said, Gil Scott Heron is going to be the musical guest while I host. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Full stop. That's what's happening. I'm bringing him in. Yeah, I love that. And they were like, oh. <laughs> That's such like, a good I'm- combo, too. Have, oh, yeah. have you watched the, yeah. have you been able to see the footage from that? Yeah, I mean, I, I have. It, it's great. I mean, that's considered to be one of the, like, classic episodes of that classic era of SNL. You know, it's yeah. it's really it something. Is. And I have this great still that shows Richard Pryor standing next to Gil and he's like holding up the album cover because the Gil, they were just, I think Gil played Johannesburg hadn't even come out yet. Oh, wow. The first time it was actually being performed mm-hmm. and the album had was about to come out like the next week or something. And they just held up the album cover. And just to have that, I mean, that was like Gil's biggest audience. Mm-hmm. I mean, even performing with Stevie Wonder at, you know, Madison Square Garden that still pales to an audience of tens of millions of people yeah. <laughs> watching SNL. So. Yeah, it's it's really crazy. And then another song I want to point out that I think is great and kind of shows how he continued to be socially conscious is the Reagan song, B-Movie. Go give them liberals hell, Ronnie. That was the mandate to the new Captain Bly on the new ship of fools. It was doubtlessly based on his comedian performance in the past as a liberal Democrat. As the head of the studio actors guild, when other celluloid saviors were cringing in terror from McCarthy, Ron stood tall. B-movie is great. It goes on for like eight minutes. It's like a long <laughs> you know, poem, basically. But uh-huh. It's one of those songs that I hear it now, and all I can think of is, God, why couldn't Gil have survived through the Trump years? Mm. Right. Because yeah. it is so sarcastic and so just poking fun at the whole Reagan era, mm-hmm. that, you know, the movie persona of reagan and what what's happened to our politics and you think about how bad that was in the 80s and i remember seeing reagan get elected and how he was a joke for a lot of people when he first got elected and how heavily he was hated by a lot of progressives and then to see trump like all those trends accelerated times 100 yeah and i can't even imagine i mean i mean gill's favorite targets were nixon obviously during watergate and reagan and Trump was like at times a hundred. Yeah. So I can't even imagine how how Gil would have written about 
about Trump. Well, and I'm sure that this is not an accident. And I, it, you know, especially you look at his Wikipedia page and it list, lists him as a poet. Like that is what his yeah. categorization is, you know, and it's interesting. I mean, I'm like reading the lyrics to B movie, for example, and you could read it like a poem. I mean, it is a poem. You are, oh, yeah. it, it, the stanzas look like a poem and the, it and is one of his other songs that is presented more like that as well. Mm -hmm. This isn't yeah. one of the like more groovier, like he's singing it. He is. Yeah. No, it is spoken word. Let's go to the next category, which is classic albums. Gil had, he was extremely prolific, putting out an album almost every year from 1970 to 1982. And his, his probably peak in terms of like what we, what would be considered by many as classic albums are the early albums, right? Like Pieces of a Man, uh, right. you know, is when things kind of like start to click, if small talk at 125th and Lennox is like the spoken word album, then it, it seems to congeal more musically in pieces of a man and the soul influence starts to come in. Do you guys think that there is a Gil Scott Heron album on the Rolling Stone 500 greatest albums list? Ooh. Um, I would say that there, there might be. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it doesn't feel out of the realm of possibility, yeah. especially the new version. They did an update in 2020 where they kind of, it was like, that's a much more diverse list, a more contemporary in many ways. And I, I don't know what his critical, and that'll be what we'll talk about next. <laughs> yeah, sure. we, we'll, fold, we'll fold this into kind of the next category, which is critical acclaim. I can see picking Pieces of a Man as one yeah. of their- I, I, Yeah, Pieces of a Man, because that's the one that has the- known version of revolution will not be televised and it also has home is where the hatred is it's almost like here's gil scott heron and it has the big song on it and that's often what yeah. leads to being on this type of list uh right. and then maybe winter in america that's yeah that also is kind of up there in terms of its influence and its, its legacy and that kind of thing yeah and that has the bottle on it so those were those mm -hmm. are maybe his two biggest but like i said he was putting out albums every year he is not on the Rolling Stone 500 Greatest uh, Albums list. Okay. Okay. But I, thought it, I thought it was possible. I do believe he is really well regarded by the critics. I think, Yeah. you know, when we think about the things that critics tend to enjoy and having a political message, being socially conscious, you know, having something to say and having lyrics that aren't just poetic, but are poems themselves. I mean, yeah. he, he did not like this moniker, but he was often referenced as the Black Dylan right. because of that, because of his prowess as a lyricist. So yeah. you know, that's, I think the, the critics were very much all in on, on Gil Scott Heron. No, I mean, definitely. I mean, I, I think until, like you said, he was producing an album a year until 82. And until that era, like they all were pretty much critically acclaimed. And then, you know, with the 80s, with less production and some of his kind of solo albums, I think got, you know, worse reviews or reviews that weren't as praiseworthy. Mm -hmm. um, and then he had like a 10-year hiatus before he came back with Spirits, which came out like in 94. Um, and that one, you know, got pretty decent reviews. But in general, yeah, that golden era of basically the entire decade of the 70s was almost all his albums were critically acclaimed. Yeah, and then he finally he had his last album came out not long before his death, which yeah. was "I'm New Here," which was released by XL Records in 2010. And that that was like a lot of top ten lists. I mean, to be honest, I mean, I'm not a huge fan of that album just because part of it feels like 
there were a lot of like him redoing either they're very sparse mm -hmm. and his voice is so shot, you know, and sometimes that works. Like you see that with, you know, whether it's like Joe Cocker, other times it doesn't work when someone's voice is so hoarse. Yeah. And the songs, I mean, some of the songs are pretty good, but they're very simple just with him on piano. So, but I think because a lot of critics hadn't heard him in that many years, or they were new critics who never heard him during the seventies and never were able to write about him. A lot of them, I think felt obligated, not obligated, but they just, it was on the top 10 lists for like all over the, all over the world. Mm -hmm. for it was a lot like of almost like a legacy pick. It's like when someone gets the, the it's award like the Steely Dan Grammy. at the end of their career, because they right. were not given it when yeah. they were peaking. <laughs> they, right. Which always happens. Out. I think when I'm new here where, you know, wasn't, really that great an album but they got tons of acclaim yeah so. and i know that he has said that he felt like it was more of an album from richard russell the man who produced yeah. it and the owner yeah. of xl and that he was like happy to be a part of it but it really wasn't his vision exactly he was kind of yeah it wasn't the ride um and i think gill had a lot of mixed feelings about i mean some of the like even revolution the fact that revolution was like his most famous song i think sometimes he he rarely performed it Mm -hmm. Like all those years I saw him at SOBs, mm -hmm. it's one of those things I think where some artists just get tired of playing the same song over and over again, or always being tagged with a certain song. Mm -hmm. So I don't think I ever remember him performing that song. Wow. And he liked to sometimes sing these like love songs he had or kind of quieter songs that nobody paid attention to mm -hmm. just because they meant a lot to him and nobody else really talked about those songs. So, yeah. Uh, let's go to the next category, which is commercial success. I, it's almost difficult to find it on Wikipedia, I guess, because he, his albums didn't really chart that well. That wasn't really the, right. the point of putting out a Gil Scott Heron album, I think, right. <laughs> you right. know, was to break uh -huh. the bank. But, you know, I thought it was interesting that he was the first artist signed to Arista Records. Right, which presented a little bit of a, some tension because basically, I mean, Clive Davis is the one who kind of thought of him as the black Bob Dylan. And mm -hmm. so when Clive left, I think he left Atlantic or CBS records, wherever he was working, mm -hmm. where he had all the success and started right. Arista, like the first artist he signed was Gil. And he really, I think, imagined we could like turn Gil into this like top selling Dylan for the black audience. Mm. And Gil didn't want any part of that. <laughs> Gil was like, fuck that. I'm not interested in that. I'm doing my own thing. Uh -huh. And so it became the whole time he was on Arista, which was you know probably almost 10 years, they were at loggerheads all the time. And they were pushing him to like add the cool in the gang production crew mm -hmm. and to add like disco beats, like in that era in the late seventies mm -hmm. to make his music more poppy. And Gil always pushed back. And so that's, I mean, it basically ended like they stopped giving him a, a recording budget by the time <laughs> it came along in the, in the mid 80s. Mm -hmm. And he got dropped, essentially. So, yeah. But although he, he did put out nine records, at, at least, yeah. you know, in, in addition to a live album, like he got to put out a lot of records with that label. Yeah. With commercial success, I think Arista was always kind of frustrated because none of the albums really did that well, like they expected. So, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. which I think Gil was like fine with. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> the next category is something we've talked about longevity. I mean, he was releasing 
from 1970 to 82, that's 12 years. That's a, a pretty incredible run in 94 and then 2010. But the fact that even those records were well-received, I think shows that he had an incredible longevity. And we, we talk about mm-hmm. the stuff he was saying and how it continued to be resonant. And, you know, as depressing yeah. as that is, is yeah. about our society, you know, his message was one and it's one that we still can hear and listen to and it feels fresh. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think part of the reason actually for why the albums or even that last album are, are so good is that like a lot of musicians who aren't, you know, mega successful, they have to perform and tour to make money. Yeah. So Gil, like throughout the 80s and throughout the 90s and even like battling his drug addiction, they had the tour because otherwise he wouldn't make any money. He wasn't mm-hmm. making like lots of money with royalties. So he didn't have the best deal. He signed with the labels. So he would have to perform and they'd go to Europe and where he had he could get bigger audiences in Europe. And they would that's where he'd make his money or doing gigs in the U.S., you know, but they were performing a lot. So that, you know, keeps you on your toes. So that when you do, even though it's been like 15 years since an album, you go in the studio and you still sound pretty damn good. I wonder why, too, he was so popular in Europe. I think of him as such an American artist. Um, Maybe we don't want to hear it about ourselves. (laughs) Maybe we're not interested in that type of self-reflection in in some ways. Like, you know, uh, I think that, you know, we don't want to talk about, uh, yeah, you can't talk about my mom that way, but you love to hear someone talk trash about their own. You're like, yeah, right. No, it's true. It's true. And also I think we like to categorize things. Like that's why I think Gil had kind of like a tough relationship sometimes with, with hip hop. Mm -hmm. He would get slotted in there and his music is different. He's like a forerunner to hip hop. Mm-hmm. So I think that hip hop audience. You might the 90s, say an early influence. Yeah. <laughs> actually, actually the next category, the next category is influence. And we can talk oh, okay. about that because yeah, he is labeled the grandfather of hip hop because of the, uh, the combination of the spoken word over the beats happening as early as, you know, 1970 or 71. And it's, yeah, he was kind of ambivalent about it. You know, and I think that's probably because he, like you said, he was, he really was so many things, whether it's, you know, being a, a poet or being like a soulful singer. He referred to himself as a bluesologist. That was what he preferred to uh, grandfather of hip hop. Bluesologist was the, the term he created for himself because it yeah. all, you know, goes back to the the blues. And I think, I mean, he did like in the beginning, I think he was very critical of hip hop, like throughout the eighties. Cause and it was, you know, in the very beginning, it was like party music. Mm-hmm. So he was just like, okay, they're, you know, basically doing poems, but they're just like stupid a, a lyrics poems about, about how great they are. <laughs> yeah, like a lot of show-offy, you know, those that classic mm-hmm. hip hop yeah. era. And then yeah. later, he was very critical of gangster rap, and he was very critical of kind of this fetishization of violence and this, like, you know, in the sexism in the lyrics. And I think he did get an appreciation, like, by the '90s where he like bonded with people like Chuck D and most deaf and common. And he saw them as sort of like like-minded spirits mm-hmm. who were doing like actually politically resonant lyrics mm-hmm. over beats. And I think, but in the, he, then he performed a few times with most deaf here in New York. I went to see him, I think twice uh, where they performed together and common too. Mm-hmm. And he developed sort of an affection for some people in that community who he saw is sort of like brothers in spirit. And he had a song called Message to the Messengers, which right. was his kind of response to hip hop, saying like, 
to talk about this stuff, you have to live it. Like there is a, a responsibility about knowing what it is you, that you're talking about. We got respect for young rappers and the way they're freeway handle. But if you're going to be teaching folks things, be sure you know what you're saying. Older folks in our neighborhood got plenty of know-how. Remember, if it wasn't for them, we wouldn't be out there now. Um, and in terms of like, as an early influence, it, it is always, I mean, for me, it's a little bit of heartbreaking and it is probably due to racism and all kinds of things and what the media tends to cover. I mean, Dylan is in his own category, of course, but there's so many like, you know, white folk singers who came up in the 60s and 70s who became like huge stars, mm-hmm. like just dominant. And Gil kind of never achieved that type of iconic status. I mean, maybe now it's finally happening. Mm-hmm. And it reminds me a little bit of like Richie Havens. Sure. Who's kind of very similar, who had this like amazing, I mean, if, like one of my favorite performances of all time is like Richie Havens at Woodstock. Well, he opened, like an, he opened the festival. Unbelievable, that version of freedom. Mm-hmm. And yet he never really hit, hit it big and you know he died and had a few obituaries so there is that kind of pervasive you know racist look at what artists we elevate especially when it comes to political music mm-hmm. even folk music especially folk music i mean i think yeah. people think of folk music as a white art form i think you yeah know. you think of pete Seeger and you know bob dylan and those guys mm-hmm. are great but there's a lot of other folk music that was out there and i mean that's one of the great things i think about Kind of in the last 10, 20 years, as you see a lot of that music being rediscovered from artists who kind of were ignored during their prime. And maybe that's happening with Gil a little bit, where he's kind of being rediscovered by a lot of people. Because that was one thing when I was writing the book that was interesting was I would actually talk to people my age or older who didn't know Gil. They'd be like, oh, yeah, I don't really know him. You'd like mention like Leaving the Revolution or another song, and they'd be like blank look. Mm-hmm. And then I'd be like in a Starbucks and I'd have like the book or something and like the 19 year old barista would be like, oh my God, I'm a huge fan of Gil. I love mm-hmm. him. And these guys, these young people like knew him so well. So the next category is artistry slash skill. And I think, I think he was very skillful kind of across the board. I think the thing that stands out is his writing. His Yeah, the lyrics. Yeah. Like that he was, I mean, he was also a published author. Like this was a guy who was a writer through and through no definitely definitely i mean i think in terms of artistry i mean yeah definitely the writing is like the, probably his strongest category obviously yeah they're basically poems and some of which are perfectly made for music um and very powerful and very evocative um and full of humor and sarcasm and passion also his his voice is kind of distinctive it's not yeah. you know maybe the most not like an Otis Redding type voice, or it's not like the most, like the most, the, the broadest range as a mm-hmm. singer, but it's very distinctive and it's very clear. And it kind of, it's perfectly somehow, something about it is like perfect for those lyrics. Like it seems as an authenticity to it, to his voice. He's not mm-hmm. trying to do something. He's not quite speaking. He's not quite singing. Mm-hmm. It's very distinctive and it has a real power to it even though he doesn't have the most powerful voice in terms of a, you know, a, a strong tenor or that kind of, you know, passion of like a Chuck D or a Otis Redding, but it, it's, it's, but it's like the voice. words have such power that it's almost like the voice is such a secondary yeah. element. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then in terms of musicianship, I mean, the third thing I would say, I mean, Gil definitely had a great, a sense for a song, like what a, what a good melody is from whether it's Whitey and the Moon to 
Um, this beautiful song I, I, I always talk about called This Is a Prayer for Everybody. This is a prayer for everybody in the world. Because I am you and you are me and we need each other. Which is sort of like a little known song, but it's kind of like a little beautiful melody. And he definitely had a great sense of rhythm and the I guess the craft of a pop song but as a musician himself actually he was kind of limited like he could play piano that was it and he called himself kind of a piano player that's all he could do and he wasn't even the best piano player he just kind of basically played chords he wasn't mm -hmm. that sophisticated and that's why I think it's really important to honor like his musical partner Brian Jackson Brian Jackson mm -hmm. Brian Jackson who's kind of been ignored in a lot of the Gill tributes is really like he's a musician Brian trained. He's an amazing piano player. He's an amazing flautist. And he brought the skills. So kind of Gil brought the, the idea, like the, basically the concepts of the song, the structure of the song, and brought the, the lyrics, of course. But Brian brought like all the instruments and the, mm -hmm. and the music to it. Yeah. All those great songs of his have that influence from Brian. Is he being honored in conjunction at all? No. No, no, he's not. No, Brian I mean, actually, I mean, I know Brian really well and he lives here in New York. And until a few years ago, Brian worked for the city. Like he had a job as kind of a, you know, kind of a public worker, wow. public employee for the city. And now he just released an album that's getting some attention because that's he- That's great. Yeah, and he, you know, puts out his own albums and he tours and, you know, he has limited success. And I mean, he was like kind of the real, real musical partner. Mm -hmm. of, uh, of Gil. It was essential. Yeah. And at, at a certain point was literally credited on the albums too. You know, yeah. It, yeah. it went from Gil Scott Heron solo to Gil Scott Heron and Brian Jackson, but right. he gets, he gets lost, I think, because the, the myth of the man, mm -hmm. you know, is, is, is so singular and yeah. telling that story, I think, is a much more attractive one than being like, and the sometimes partnership with this guy is not as clean of a story. And sadly, that's sometimes that's how it goes when, right. when people are honored like this. One thing I want to mention, you mentioned his humor. I just wanted to point out that we talked about how many hats he wore. He was also kind of like a stand-up. Like there would be moments in his shows, and maybe you saw this because you saw him many times, you know, where he would just kind of go off telling stories and like making jokes and being really funny for extended periods of time. Yeah. And he made a lot of jokes during his shows. Um, and some of that's captured in like recordings, especially of his live songs. Yeah. That live album you were mentioning, or do they keep the banter in and stuff like that? Yeah. They kept some of it in. Unfortunately, not enough, I think. But there's some where he had, like, I think, Bluesology or one of the songs, and he talks about Jaws. See, something like that, it just show you why you can't hardly have no black people in no horror movies. Because <laughs> as soon as they found out Jaws was in the water, black people said, no, I'm not going in the water. Jaws is in the water. See, I mean, that's the, whole, that's the whole thing about it, that, like, Jaws couldn't catch no black people because we can hear the music. <laughs> it's more than banter it's like it's like legit like it's bits. like bits like full on, full <laughs> i on love bits. it it's yeah yeah, yeah like, no, he, he developed them it's not him and often I mean, i've seen footage of him it's not him just like sitting at the piano like literally standing up like with he the picks microphone. up the mic and yes. walks oh like, i love like that telling telling bits and stories and jokes yeah. and it's yeah it's really great oh, wow so, he really got to have it all yeah like, uh, all comedians want to be 
rock stars and all rock stars want to yeah, be that's comedians. True. That's a good point, actually. I'm sure yeah. some people saw him and were like jealous that he was able to pull it off. <laughs> but yeah, but a very acerbic sense of humor, which I think he got from his mother, who was a librarian and very, very um, smart and sarcastic. But and that comes across. I mean, when I saw him, he would often repeat like all the great standups, they kind of repeat the same, you know, oh, yeah. mm-hmm. over yeah, and over again. Acts almost. Uh, it's material. Yeah. But, you know, he would do that. And, you know, talking about Watergate there in the 90s, and he's still making, you know, old jokes in terms of <laughs> But always making a few jokes in between the yeah. songs. I I love that. I also like that he was still doing his Watergate bits in the nineties. He's like, that's (laughs) like that. He really, he really is a standup. Trotting out out the, uh, the classics playing Mm -hmm. the hits. Right. So we are at our last category. Some might say the most important category, and it alludes to what you were talking about before, which was, does my mom know who they are? Mm-hmm. You know, kind of kind of speaks to the cultural ubiquity. And I texted my mom, one word answer, no. There you go. I you know, texted my mom as well, one word answer, nope. Wow. wow. And then I said, and I went for it and I said, does dad? And I also got to no. know. <laughs> and it's, it's interesting, yeah, because my, my parents are boomers. You know, my parents graduated wow. high school, like 68, 69, yeah. like they were... Yeah fully in the zone to to know about Gil Scott here and I thought but they don't yeah they have no idea but were your parents like part of the counterculture revolution I mean my dad had long hair all right Joe (laughs) nice try Joe I think that speaks though to like I mean a lot of the you know what was done in terms of promotion uh, of these artists because I mean my parents are a little bit older but my parents were huge you know Bob Dylan fans they were literally if you if Today, they'd call them Leonard Cohen stands. They were yeah. like, a, like groupies of Leonard Cohen. They'd go so oh, wow. they went. And they knew my father listened to Victor Jara, who was like a Chilean artist who was killed by Pinochet. You know, a lot of political music they'd listen uh-huh. to and folk music. And they had no idea who Gil was. So, I mean, granted, they're white and they're living outside of Boston in a very yeah. kind of bubble. But they had, it's just kind of shocking that over all those, you know, 20, 30 years, they'd never heard that name. So yeah. that's very common, I think. Yeah, and that, that's what makes me think, you know, he was never on a ballot, but I, I get the sense if he was on a ballot, he probably wouldn't have gotten in the traditional way just because he lacks that name recognition. Right. Well, and I think of why people younger know, I mean, we talk about the main, the name check at the beginning, my mis- my misattributed name <laughs> check, but like I have heard of him because I have listened to LCD Sound System and because I am on the internet for my musical consumption because I, because the algorithm has exposed me to Gil Scott Heron, whereas especially how segregated radio was, you know, you might not, they're just, it might not cross your path at all. That's a good point. I think, especially because you, you, as you said, I mean, a lot of his songs weren't on radio. I mean, maybe the bottle got played a few times, but every other song, either because they were too political or they just weren't, popular enough, they wouldn't be played on radio except for college radio. Mm-hmm. And in the old days, when you go to record stores, you know, a lot of record stores just had the biggest artists. And if they did have a little category for, you know, more, you know, independent music, even there, you might be hard pressed to find a single Gill album. Mm-hmm. So for that generation and those decades, it's very likely, yeah, that you wouldn't have heard anything by Gill. 
Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I didn't discover it. And I was really into music in high school. I didn't discover it until I was in college. Well, you know, we don't have to worry or like try to think about if and when he's going to get inducted because he's we know he's being inducted this year. So let's talk about his induction and what we think that might look like uh, in October. You know, it's it's the side category. So I get the sense that the induction of these artists might not get as much real estate in the show. They might not even get a speech. There were, there will certainly be a great package put together mm-hmm. uh, with interviews in there. And then I wouldn't be shocked if there's a performance, but let's uh, let's talk about who might be involved in a performance or a speech or even a small amount of screen time in the package. I think there's a lot of people that we've mentioned already, like Chuck D, Chuck D or Most Def or Common or Stevie Wonder, someone mm-hmm. who, who knew the man and yeah. collaborated yeah. with him. I can um, see that. I think it would be great if they involved Brian Jackson in the performance. I, I really hope they do. I mean, because Brian deserves that. I mean, mm-hmm. and he's an amazing artist in his own right. Um, but yeah, it could be, it'll probably do something like that. I imagine like whether it's, you know, common or somebody who's very in that vein is inherited that, that Gil, um, you know, spirit. Um, but yeah, I mean, I don't know about Stevie wonder. I think Stevie, to be honest, I had a hard time. I tried moving heaven and earth to talk to Stevie about Gil. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I even reached out cause I used to work in entertainment journalism. So I know people like in the publicity circle and I found like the number for like Stevie's brother who like, takes care of all intros to Stevie and called him like at the mansion. Wow. And I couldn't, they wouldn't do it. I I couldn't, I couldn't get through to Stevie. And I think part of it is because apparently Stevie was like really, really uh, heartbroken at what happened to Gil with his drug addiction. Cause it was just hard to see and to observe. And he just, I think still is very difficult for him to talk about especially with a journalist. So I hope he does do something. It would be amazing to have Stevie do something, but you know, here's a prayer for that. But yeah, I don't know. It'll probably be um, like one of the, one of the hip hop. Yeah. Well, and I'm curious, do you think that I know that this will be kind of the next part that we go into too, which is if there were to be some sort of tribute performance or if they were to, I, the only way I could see that happening is them like rolling it into the Jay-Z LL Cool J portion of the evening. I don't know. I'm like Gil Scott, Heron, Kraftwerk, Jay-Z, LL Cool J, like Right. Mash it all can, up together. You can you could make something interesting out of it. Yeah, potentially. Or you could have, I mean, you could have Jay Z and LL like doing "Revolution Will Not Be Televised" or something. I feel like if the "Revolution Will Not Be Televised" happens, I feel like Chuck D should be there. He just seems to yeah. me like the natural person to do a portion of that song. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, someone we haven't talked about who has sampled Gil quite a bit, and who then was sampled by Gil kind of in response is Kanye West. I'm like, don't you say it. Cause there's right. no way nobody, no. nobody is going to risk it on Mr. West. It's I not just, I think it's, it's worth pointing out the, the connection and the influence and the fact right. that he then in response sampled Kanye. Right. And, and Kanye actually performed at Gil's memorial service. Oh, right. really? After he passed. I, um, and I mean, to be fair, I mean, like, probably like the most well-known sample is like on, you know, Kanye's 
album where he like literally has like a one minute section of Gill doing comment number one, which is like mm-hmm. one of his most incendiary political, like spoken word bits from the first album. He has like an entire section that's just like the complete sample of Gill doing that. Which is kind of amazing because that album sold, you know, tens of millions of copies. Oh, absolutely. I mean, 10 years ago, even five years ago, having Kanye would not be, would be an absolute get, would be just the get of all gets. I would be so excited. I still think it's a huge get. I think if they could do it and if he shows up and behaves, I don't know. Not even behaves though, because that sounds like so condescending. But like, mm-hmm. I really don't think he's stable. Like, I don't think yeah. that he is in a place to be doing anything for anybody. I like, know. I think he's, he's got some major, I don't know, mental health issues, or I don't know what it is. is something is happening. wrong, and then the fame and the money have not helped. Yeah. But you know, at the same time, if Kanye has turned a corner and I don't know, uh, gone to therapy um, (laughs) to really like deal with some of the stuff that is clearly plaguing him and like made his big, I I mean, if the hall could get Kanye West, they would get Kanye West. I don't, but at the same time, it is a huge risk. It is such a gamble to even try yeah. You know? mm-hmm. yeah, it's hard to know what they'll do. So, Joe, you're saying they're also going to do, they do like, they might do a little performance, but they're also going to do like some little package thing? Or... They will definitely do. Yeah. Traditionally, there would be a speech. One person would give an induction speech. They'll throw to like a little package. Those are very, very well made. In, Which is like uh, a little video thing, you mean? Yeah. It's like, like a, a little, it's like a little three, four minute documentary that sums up their career, gets you uh-huh. amped for their induction doesn't matter who it is we've watched it with artists where we don't care and then once the package is over we're like let's go yeah i'm like oh i get it yeah sure okay dire straits they were more important than i thought they were that's actually not true then if the person is alive you know they come and accept and then they play but if it's a posthumous induction then they tend to have some sort of tribute performance right which could uh, but isn't necessarily going to be the same person who gave the speech sometimes there's overlap sometimes it's a separate thing and they've done you know like with tupac they did a lot of people came out right. uh, and they did, did different parts to it uh you know it was like alicia keys and then it was snoop dogg and ti and yg and tretch and like so you could involve a lot of people in a gil scott heron tribute performance and i think it could be very cool especially tupac they could have a hologram yeah right you could you could finally uh his dying wish absolutely (laughs) on brand for gil scott heron to come back as a hologram at a (laughs) rock and roll hall of fame induction literally If the grave rolling, (laughs) let it commence. And I could see some sort of medley type of thing because doing all of Revolution will not be televised for a very highly produced HBO induction ceremony. I don't know that I necessarily see that happening. Maybe it starts off with Chuck D doing some of the lines and then it goes into maybe Johannesburg or uh, The Bottle or one of the more song songs that he had. And then you bring out, I mean, we were talking about how difficult it is to get a hold of Stevie Wonder, but he is a 
longtime friend of the hall has performed at induction ceremonies and concerts for them pretty consistently. So he performed I, you know, for Bill Withers. He did. Yeah. Oh, he did. Yeah. 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 And, and so, I mean, that, that's not out of the realm of possibility. You know, you, you start with Chuck D doing the lyrics. Maybe he's doing it with Mos Def or Common. And then all of a sudden Stevie's getting wheeled out and then you, you turn it into something amazing. else. Yeah, I, they could do something really cool with this. Oh, wait a minute. Carol's getting wheeled out. Hang on. I'm trying. I'm bringing everybody in. Everybody's being inducted this year. Uh, everybody who's being inducted. It's actually the jam is oh Gil Scott yeah. Heron based. Yeah. I, I, there you go. There you go. That would be, uh, that would certainly be something. I mean, listen, you're the Gil Scott Heron biographer. Is there any chance that you would go to this induction ceremony in October in Cleveland? Yeah, I, it's so funny. It's a minute ago while you were uh, talking, I, I was thinking about that. I was like, I can't imagine. Maybe I should say something like, I, I it'd be hard to imagine kind of like Gil going to that. I mean, he definitely liked attention. And I think that he had a kind of a bitterness that he never got the respect or attention he, you know, imagine for himself and he did love being in the spotlight like on that Stevie yeah. Wonder tour so he would go I think but he'd be he'd make sure that he wasn't being like exploited or or just being thrown up on stage he'd either like like not show up on stage and uh, or yeah he was having you know if he like it slipped back into addiction he just wouldn't show up mm -hmm. you know but so it's hard to say I don't well, know. would you go? It's open to the public. Uh, I will be there. Yeah, we, we, it, but it we're is in Cleveland. We are going to uh, go. The truth of sure, the matter yeah. is, it is in Cleveland. If you want people that you've met before, right. better there. No, no, I, I, I like Cleveland. I mean, I would go if I could get in there. Sure, I hadn't really thought about it, but that'd be kind of fun. It'd be fun well, to go. Well, we we will definitely be there, and perhaps um, we'll see you there, uh, Marcus. <laughs> I want to thank you so much for doing the show. This was no, great. Thank you. I mm -hmm. really appreciate it. Uh, and I want to give you the chance to plug anything that you're working on, or obviously the, the Gil Scott Heron book or your, right. your Twitter, your social media have at it. Oh, okay. Well, certainly I mean, first uh, that please, you know, go buy the book, Gil Scott Heron pieces of a man by Marcus Baram. Uh, it's there out there on Amazon and elsewhere. Yeah. My Twitter is just M Baram. And B A R A M. And right now, I mean, as a working journalist, I'm I'm editing a lot of stories for Capital in Maine, which is an, a news nonprofit based in California, but they do a lot of nationwide coverage. Uh, right now, we're doing a lot of coverage of income inequality and that crisis and what has caused it and the impact it's having. And we have a whole thing called the 5100 pay gap. So basically, if you're making $50,000 a year now, if trends had continued the way they did from the end of World War II to the 70s, you should be making 100,000. Wow. That makes sense. A yeah, lot of it forces does. have conspired to take money from working Americans and you know give them to the wealthy or to Wall Street. So I feel like focus. I feel like we actually did just we just fixed that though. Did you know that Juneteenth is a national holiday? <laughs> <laughs> uh, it took care of everything. Yep. Ta-da. Sing Kumbaya now. Yeah. Well, uh, that, that sounds uh, great. Make sure to everyone listening, make sure to check out uh, Marcus's work. 
our listeners know that they can follow us at Rock Hall Pod on Twitter and Instagram. Rockhallpod at gmail.com is the email. If you'd like Kristen to see your message, you need to designate that somewhere in your email. Otherwise, I'm not going to forward it because she doesn't want to read it. Uh, subscribe to us. Subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts. Rate and review us. Uh, that really helps to get a rating and a review. I just remembered last week I, I said that we were going to start a pledge to get people to do that. And then I fully, oh, yeah. for, <laughs> I fully forgot to do that. Maybe I, I can jump on Twitter now. It's early enough. Uh, but anyway, yeah, rate and review us five stars only though if you're gonna do anything less then don't bother because that would be rude uh thank you to mike lloyd for the logo thank you to yusu kim for the music thank you to pantheon podcast for hosting us akg for the microphone and thank you to future rock legends who gives us all the information that anyone would need to do a rock more hall of fame podcast now before we end i do want to say something so recently we had a voter calling party episode where we called a bunch of voters and people ended up staying on the line and we had a lot of fun we talked to old friends and we also talked to new friends we talked to a former nominating committee member, Jim Bestman, who blew our minds by telling us that he was not going to vote for five artists, uh, that he was only <laughs> going to vote for four. Uh, you know, he's a veteran journalist and it was great to talk to him. Uh, we just learned that Jim passed away recently. And so we just want to extend our love and thoughts to Jim's family. And so rest in peace, Jim Bestman. I'm Joe Pozzola. I'm Kristen Studdard. And who cares? About the rock call. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.